Hello, thank you for tuning in today to yet another podcast. This is Mike Azenko. I'm very fortunate to be joined today uh, with Elizabeth Saunders, Associate Professor of Political Science and International Affairs at George Washington University, as well as a visiting fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Most excitedly, Liz is our first returning guest. We spoke back in March in a podcast titled Presidents in Foreign Policy, a conversation with Elizabeth Saunders, so please go back and listen to it. Liz is one of the most important leading policy-relevant scholars in political psychology, international relations, security studies more broadly. Uh, Two recent publications that I wanted to highlight uh, from her that appeared at Monkey Cage blog in the month of November. The first was titled, What a President Trump Means for Foreign Policy, that was published on November 9th. And the second, How Much Power Will Trump's Foreign Policy Advisors Have, published on November 21st. Just follow all of her research on Twitter, at Prof Saunders, that's at P-R-O-F-S-A-U-N-D-E-R-S, or just Google Elizabeth Saunders. Her homepage comes up. You can find all of her pubs, her CVs, uh, all of her forthcoming uh, research publications as well. Liz, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be back and honored to be the first returning guest. <laughs> it's a sign of uh, both your strength and uh, your... Uh, your sort of depressing relevancy to the problem today. Just just talk about that as a from a from a professional point of view, a research agenda that you began over a dozen years ago and have built upon in various different publications and in pathways is now directly relevant. Does that make you feel uh, more policy relevant? Does that make you feel more scared? Uh, talk about it from a professional point of view as an academic. You know, I've been having this conversation a lot with many of my security studies friends, as I'm sure you have too, Micah, um, friends that study nuclear policy, <laughs> friends that study military intervention. Um, uh, many of us have been writing on these things for a long time, and kind of, it's funny because political scientists, I think, have become more engaged in um, uh, the public sphere and translating their findings for public debate, and that's mostly, I think, a good thing. But at the moment, we are all, I think, kind of wishing paradoxically to be slightly less relevant. So it's a tense time. um, And I think, uh, you know, for me, working on these issues, it's it's been sort of a way of thinking out loud about what this all means for our ongoing research. And to the extent it helps anybody make sense of it, I suppose I'm glad I can be helpful. But uh, it's definitely a paradoxical, strange time that's um, I think many of us are feeling um, conflicted thoughts about it. Well, I, I think it's tremendously important, and, and I'm certainly grateful that you take the time to do that because there is an ideational basis and research findings that can support sort of everything uh, um, that's that appears to be, you know, it, it, it feels like we're at year zero, sort of like the Khmer Rouge right now, and we don't know what's going to happen on day one, but there are, again, there are theoretical underpinnings. There's research to support sort of everything that a Trump administration um, may or may not do. So your contributions are needed now more than ever. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I will say that that first publication that you mentioned, the one I published on the morning after the election, you know, I had been up, as most many people in our world had been, you know, watching the returns and couldn't sleep and found myself in bed lying there sort of writing this post in my head and, and, I came at it from the perspective of, okay, I've been studying leaders for, you know, almost 10 years now. Um, I sort of have a feel for exactly, for foreign policy at least, for what exactly this will mean. And 
I think it was probably the quickest post I've ever written. Wow. It came out in about, you know, 90 minutes and I sent it off. And uh, I'm not usually the type to write quite that quickly. So, um, which isn't, I think it's just a measure of, um, you know, there are many of us in the security studies community that have uh, uh, deep knowledge of what's going on uh, behind the scenes and that we never really thought we'd be playing out in quite such a public way. So uh, we have an interesting time, we, at least. We do, and, and, and here we are. And we now have an interesting president. Um, we have a president who has no elective office experience. Much of his private sector work is shrouded in secrecy and non-disclosure agreements. Uh, the public face of what he accomplishes um, is, as is true of any uh, uh, business leader, probably misleading. Um, he has no coherent foreign policy agenda uh, to speak of, in part because it seems to be personality-driven uh, and very and very dynamic. It can change with the next phone call, and his website sort of famously has very limited policy proposals. So, uh, in foreign policy, we can say he is inexperienced. And some of your research talks about the role of advisors uh, around an inexperienced president. I mean, talk about uh, how you imagine the role his advisors will play. So um, this is a great question, and I think um, it, it's a little instructive sometimes to understand the background of where people's research comes from. And so I'll just give you a little of the backstory about a forthcoming paper I have that looks at this question of inexperienced leaders and, and the role that their advisors play. Great, so yes. it, it, in 2014, I was asked to contribute to um, uh, what is now going to be a special issue of the journal International Organization on the role of individuals in, in international relations and the new behavioral um, research that's been done. And I decided I would try to write a paper about groups uh, because most decisions are made in groups, groups right. of individuals. But we still don't really have a great sense of how individual foibles and biases and, and so forth kind of add up when you put pe individual people into groups. And so one of the questions that had been sort of at the forefront of debates in the public sphere and, and in political debates about foreign policy uh, around the time, for example, that George W. Bush was running, and then again when President Obama, President um, then Senator Obama was running, is does it really matter if our president has very little foreign policy experience? Because the norm on both sides of the aisle, very much a bipartisan trend, is to nominate and then even elect people without very much foreign policy experience. So right. this is very typical. This is not at all atypical um, on either side. And the thing that you always would see is that these candidates would immediately try to sort of vacuum up the experts from the bench of their party's foreign policy, right? right. They, they would try to get the best minds in their party's uh, establishment. And, and because, A, they want to learn stuff. I mean, Bush would talk about being sort of tutored in foreign policy, but B, they want a signal. It was considered a political benefit, right? It was considered a good thing to be able to say, I am surrounded by all these smart people. And Bush went on, I believe, meet the press in the 2000 campaign and said, listen, you know, I don't. Uh, it's okay. I'm surrounded by a really smart team. Right. And and so that was kind of the norm. And and so the my the question that I set out to answer in 2014 was, was that enough? Assuming that you had an inexperienced president and a, an experienced team of advisors. Was that enough? And I had a little chart in my paper, and there was a and, and one part of the chart was whether the president has experience, yes or no, and the other was whether the advisors had experience, yes or no. And the box that was no, no, the, the neither the advisors nor the president had experience. 
I put an X through that and I sort of said, that's not really possible. Like it's logically <laughs> excluded because why, if you were inexperienced as a candidate, would you ever pick a bunch of people who didn't have experience right. to advise you? It just, it wasn't, you couldn't contemplate that scenario as possible. And now, um, I mean, the developments of the last couple of weeks have actually filled it a little bit more, but um, for all intents and purposes, for most of the campaign, Trump was occupying that box. Right. Um, he explicitly rejected the possibility of, you know, reaching out to the GOP foreign policy establishment, and they rejected him. They're, the gulf in terms of the Republican Party and Trump, I think, was probably widest on national security and foreign policy. Uh, the Never Trump movement had a tremendous amount of people from the GOP foreign policy establishment. Right. And it, and the list of people, as you remember from the campaign, no one had really ever heard of them. Right. You know, the people who he named as his foreign policy advisors, and mostly he said, I'm just going to rely on my big brain. So that's the starting point that, you know, we're starting from here. And um, spoiler alert, the paper found that even if you did actually fill up your team with really smart people and really experienced people, that actually wasn't enough either. So what I did in that paper was to compare George W. Bush with his father, who, of course, was uh, probably the last and only uh, recent president we've had or post-Cold War president we've had with a tremendous amount of foreign policy sure. upon taking office. Just a wide, the likes of this kind of experience we're not likely to see again. Um, and the the nice thing about that comparison is that many of the people who served both father and son were the same people in many cases, Dick Cheney and so forth, and also they had had high-level foreign policy experience in both upon both of those presidents taking office because the Bush 41 people had all served in high positions in Ford or Reagan. So you really could hold a lot of things constant in that comparison. And of course they were both Republicans and from the same family, but uh, one had, you know, president Bush, the elder had experience and his son had almost none. And so, and they both intervened in the same place, Iraq. And so the, I compared the way that the same people approached those two interventions and, the really interesting thing that I found was actually going back to the the 1991 Gulf War because a lot of the same people, for example, Dick Cheney, saying things like, these war plans, they're not going to pass muster with the president, and the president will have all kinds of questions about this, and I can't take this to the president. Right. Because the argument is that you know an experienced president casts a long shadow and over, this, over advisors, and they know that their work is going to get an independent check when they take these plans to the Oval Office, and they are the president's going to know what questions to ask, and it just sort of raises the the stakes and the level of uh, the quality of the work that gets done in a way. And um, so it was really an argument about monitoring and sort of implicitly getting more out of your advisors. And the upshot is the same advisor working for an experienced president behaves very differently than it than if he or she worked for an inexperienced president. Sure. And well, so what does this tell us about some of the names that we've seen mentioned? Mike Flynn, Katie McFarland, Jim Mattis, Rex Tillerson, Mike Pompeo to the CIA. Um, there are advisors here with an interesting mix of foreign policy experience. Some the corporate boardroom, some uh, on congressional committees, some in the private sector. Does, does the diversity of that, uh, of that foreign policy, or I would say global experience more than foreign policy-making experience, well, I mean, does that make a difference in how they might impact uh, uh, decision-making in a Trump administration? Well, so it's a, it's a great question. And I think 
sort of one of the things that came out of my paper is that advisors and an inexperienced president are very empowered and they because they know they're not going to really be supervised by somebody with a lot of substantive knowledge. And right. incidentally, in the course of doing that research, a fascinating finding that I found uh, from the psychological world uh, and those who study expertise is that it really doesn't translate. So just having expertise, say, in business does not readily translate to foreign policy sure. um, necessarily, which isn't to say somebody like Tillerson may have had foreign policy experience in the course of conducting business, but that's different from, say, making deals, you know, within the United States or the kind of experience that Trump often um, talks about sure. for himself. So, you know, experience is sort of a domain-specific is the sort of term of art that's often used um, thing. So there there was a great piece in The Atlantic, um, I believe by uh, Yoni Applebaum last week, talk, mm-hmm. that looked at Flynn and the difference between Flynn's experience when he was uh, in the military um, at JSOC, I believe, and and so forth, versus when he was put in charge of DIA, uh, Defense Intelligence Agency. And um, the difference is that his expertise is really in connecting the dots, and he apparently had a real talent for that and sort of putting together intelligence in ways that other people couldn't. But at that point, he had a very strong boss really keeping tabs on him. Sure. And that was very important for sort of keeping him in line and harnessing and making use of what he was good at while kind of tamping down his more risky tendencies. Sure. When he was put in charge of DIA, of course, he didn't really have that kind of supervision above him, and he didn't do that well, as we now know. Um, and was essentially forced out. And so the, if you now imagine the scenario of him going in to be the president's national security advisor, uh, he's going to be tremendously empowered. Um, he's, uh, he's not even subject to Senate confirmation you know, before he goes in. Um, he'll be the central hub of, that's what the national security advisor is supposed to do, collating all this information, central hub of foreign policy and national security information coming to the president. And he's going to be working for someone who is not equipped to be that sort of you know, strong monitor is going to keep him on the straight and narrow. Um, in fact, it's the reverse. Trump will be reliant on him for all the information. And so uh, we have some data on how Flynn did with and without this kind of strong supervision, and it's not encouraging. And and, and the, um, the other thing that they've hinted is they're going to shrink the size of the NSC by 75 to 80 percent, which would, in effect, centralize it even greater under the National Security Advisor uh, and, and would require that the National Security Advisor coordinates both uh, uh, implementation as well as advice coming to and from the various foreign policy agencies. Exactly. And so we can talk about the merits of shrinking the NSC, which actually many people on both sides of the aisle have thought uh, you know, would be a good thing to do. On the other hand, this may not be the moment where you want to be decreasing the amount of expertise right. at the NSC. Um, so as you say, what you have here is a shrinking centralized um, role with somebody who is has not in the past been successful uh, without some very strong hand of supervision and has some really alarming, um, I mean, I think of all the national security names that have been floated, he's the one that really is the most alarming because of this sort of tendency to promote fake news and and, um, uh, having tweeted out about Pizzagate, this terrible story uh, that we in Washington, you know, I drove by there with my children about an hour before the gunman sort of stormed into Uh. Comet Pizza. I mean, it's really... So that's the one that really just um, 
uh, I think it's no accident that he's being put in a non-Senate confirmable position, right? Sure. There'll be, there'll be um, no hearings. There'll be no congressional no hearing, testimony. Yeah. No, yeah. Um, and you sort of wonder whether some of the scrutiny that's being directed at the other comp, uh, the other appointments is, is, in a way, trying to get at the because they can't get at Flynn in the same mm. way. Um, so uh, I think Flynn is really the the one to, to try to keep an eye on the most, if, uh, to the extent we can, as viewing it from the outside, because that is really a tremendously risky move, I think, um, for what that's worth. And, and so pivot to second to my favorite topic, uses of force. Um, your excellent book, Leaders at War, sort of demonstrates that presidents have pretty set ideas about threats and and that and those perceived uh, ideas or, or preconceived ideas about threats tend to shape their decisions to go to war. We don't know a lot about Donald Trump's. We know Donald Trump's vision of the world, and uh, we know something about his um, opinion of alliances and sort of geoeconomics, but we don't know much about what he perceives of as threatening, other than the sort of use of ISIS and, and immigrant fears uh, beginning in the summer of 2015. Do we have any sense of what he finds threatening and therefore way he, when he may decide to use force? You know, you're, you um, are reminding me that I'm grateful that my book is already out, so I don't have to figure <laughs> out in print the answer to that question, because Trump is um, he's testing a lot of people's theories in real time, but he's also confounding a lot of people's theories because it's just hard to keep track, right? Um, so I will say that my uh, my reading on what Trump believes, to the extent he believes anything, is uh, highly indebted to the writings of Thomas Wright. Sure, uh, at Brookings. At Brookings, who wrote an extremely prescient essay many months before the, the campaign ended. I want to say June even. Uh, don't quote me on the exact date, but it was many, many months ago, um, saying everybody says Trump has no foreign policy views, but here are three that actually are uh, go back, you know, 20, 30 years, and, and everything else might be sort of twisting in the wind, as you suggested at the top. But these three are pretty consistent. One is that he's against free trade. Uh, two, he's against, he's, he doesn't believe in alliances, and, and he might sort of pay lip service to them, but he doesn't, he believes that allies should pay more, and, 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 and it's just very skeptical of the benefits of alliances. And three, he's supportive of authoritarianism, particularly um, in Russia. Right. And those, those three beliefs are pretty consistent. Um, Tom actually has a brand new essay in foreign policy, which I was just reading last night and highly, highly recommend, uh, on the emerging camps within Trump's cabinet. And he sort of breaks it down into three. One is the America Firsters, uh, who are sort of, uh, you know, the ones who are more sort of in the anti-trade and, and no free riding kind of camp. One camp is represented by Flynn and is really the sort of religious um, I forget exactly what his phrasing was. He's, they're the ones who are focused on the religious conflict dimension mm -hmm. of Trump's foreign policy, and that is really um, the anti-Islamist uh, faction led by Flynn uh, and really is focused on the Middle East and combating ISIS. And interestingly, is it somewhat at odds with the America Firsters because they don't necessarily think that the way to combat ISIS is necessarily to collapse you know, the U.S. position in, in Europe and Asia, or else they just don't care about collapsing. They, they don't, they're not interested in that. They want to just fight ISIS, but they don't, they're not interested in collapsing American alliances all over the world. So that's a second camp. And the third camp is what remains of the traditionalists in the GOP, 
Um, I guess you could say that is now represented by Mattis, um, would have been represented by Romney. To some extent, Nikki Haley is, uh, UN is part of that sort of, you know, the traditional GOP that almost any other nominee would have been drawing on as the mainstream appointees. Um, and, and maybe Tillerson fits in there. It's, it, he's still a little bit of a cipher, but, uh, you know, he's, he's, he doesn't seem to be that out there as far as, you know, he's not really out there with Flynn in the, right. um, the just zealotry. He's more of a realist to the extent we can say anything about him. So the real question is, how does, where does Trump fit into this? Because while he has said tough things about ISIS, he's also said things that seem sort of neo-isolationist. And clearly he has a foot in all these camps, or maybe just the first two without the traditionalists, but at some point he's going to face a decision where he's going to have to choose. And Tom's point in this essay was that these three factions, each of them needs to make alliances with the other to block the third. And... um it's fine for Trump to be playing this out as sort of a reality television kind of scenario now, but there will come a moment where there is a crisis and he will have to make a choice. Sure. And one thing that I found in the course of writing my book is that presidents often come in with views and then events intervene and they find themselves sucked in. This happened, you know, par excellence to George W. Bush, who if you go back and you look at the transcripts of the 2000 debates, we don't, do we don't do nation building. We don't do nation building. And uh, I mean, I've read those transcripts so many times, and it just it <laughs> I'm hits sorry. you over the head every time. We don't do nation building. We don't go in and we don't tell other countries what to do. We don't. We shouldn't. Um, his uh, national, first national security advisor and then Secretary of State Condi Rice said the 82nd Airborne should not be taking kids to kindergarten. <laughs> yes. And of course, engaged in you know the most uh, one of the most. Uh, intrusive and large-scale interventions, uh, certainly in recent American history, and um, really just ended up in a very different place than he proclaimed he would be uh, as a candidate and then as for his first nine months in office. So uh, push will come shove at some point, and um, Trump will have to resolve some of these tensions, pick a side, and um, the I think that the real concern is if he ends up using force, will he be prepared to do it? Will he, in the literal sense of having plans in place that make sense, um, that have some relationship between ends and means, mm-hmm. the, the, the the kind of planning that we would hope would go into a military a use of military force? Um, and it's, it can actually be very dicey to have a president who whose instincts are isolationist but that ends up using force because of sort of decisions made in the moment. Well, and furthermore, this is a president who has said he's going to have a campaign plan, which will be secret um, to the American public as well as potentially to to uh, to U.S. partners and allies until like the moment before it's unleashed. Um, I, I was actually reading his uh, speech at Fayetteville, which he gave last week, which is I think the best sort of outline of the use of force. And he talks about we're we're going to stop racing to topple foreign regimes. And the destructive cycle and intervention in chaos will end. But then he also emphasizes, similarly to the last two presidents, that defeating terrorism, destroying ISIS is the core objectives uh, of his foreign policy. And th- that requires the use of kinetic force, host nation support, overflight rights, basing rights, a lot of, uh, a lot of partnerships. And that will require partnering with regimes that um, may not do what you want and you may have to act against their sovereign will, because he also talks a lot in his speech about mutual sovereignty, which I think is a tip of the cap to Russia 
and spheres of influence, but could play some role into his, again, his broader strategic objective of defeating ISIS. And this gets to a larger point, I think, which is that one of the things that is sort of, um, I think, now becoming a Trump hallmark, he really only values policies or deals or outcomes that he that have sort of visible benefits or that can be put in a right. press release, right? Most of the, what what a lot of the policies that he disdains have in common is that their benefits are invisible. Trade is one of them, right? In the sense that free trade has benefits, it has, certainly has costs, but economists will tell you that the the costs of trade are concentrated, so where the factory closed, for example, but the benefits are diffuse. We benefit from lower prices uh, on goods and so forth, but we don't think about that every morning when we wake up and put on a sweater that may have been made somewhere uh, outside the United States. So without, you know, and I don't mean to minimize the cost of trade by saying that, but it's just a feature of the of the of the benefits of trade that they're not politically salient. Right. Same thing with alliances, right? We don't get up in the morning and say thank goodness for NATO. We're <laughs> right. grateful to NATO when when we really need it. And the the risk here is that because he is so disdainful of these kinds of um policies and I would put diplomacy, incidentally, in that category. So trade alliances and diplomacy, because other research that I've done that, that I believe we talked about on our first podcast shows that where does the president and the secretary of state travel? Typically to to major allies, major trade partners, major military spenders, strategic interests, right? This is this is boring, each spinach tending of interests, right. right? Not And Trump does not do boring, right? He wants splashy deals. But that isn't really what this kind of diplomacy is about. The problem is, when a crisis comes, that's what you need. You sure. need the stuff where the benefits have been invisible all along. You need the alliances to be there for you. You need um, the, your diplomatic partners to, you know, you don't go to, you don't fly to Baghdad in the crisis. You fly to London, Paris, Geneva, and so forth. It's a little bit like neglecting a friendship, and then, you know, you don't you don't call your buddy for a year, and then, you know, when you really need him to help you, he's like, well, what have you done? You know, why should I help you? You haven't called me in a year. So... Right. There's a real risk that his disdain for these policies that have invisible but very important benefits is going to come back to haunt him when he actually needs to use force to accomplish his goals. Because there's just not a lot of specifics between how do you get from no entanglements to hitting ISIS hard where they live. Right. It's, it, it's just not clear how you reconcile that. And the specifics of getting from here to there... I don't know what the answer is, but it certainly must involve some kind of consultation and partnership with our allies. But Trump hardly ever talks about them in a positive way. So it's very tough to fill in the blanks. As well as certainly in the case of defeating ISIS, there are uh, governments in the region who are supporting our ground partners uh, fighting in northern Syria who have different objectives for the future of Assad, and they don't want him to stay. And if it is the position of Donald Trump that under all circumstances uh, Assad regime will stay because this makes the Russians happy or, or some difference, you know you're going to be at cross purposes on day one on on what you claim is your is your number one objective. So um, I think it, I think what we just don't know actually is which is in the end which is Trump's number one objective, right? Right? Because if it's if it's defeating ISIS, that just has a whole host of follow-on things that you would want to see that are at odds with his other objective, which could be the number one objective, uh, which is to sort of pull back. Uh, and it's easy to talk about these things in campaigns as if you don't have to reconcile them. But the presidency and governing is about making choices. It's about being forced to make choices between uh, 
many options and, and making decisions about where you spend your money and where you send your troops. And um, that's a that can be very painful. And this is not something Trump has much experience with. And he's in for a real reckoning, I think. And, and it's having realistic expectations because um, two presidents for 15 years have said they're going to defeat and destroy various terrorist groups, and they haven't. Um, so yep. uh, when, when, when these groups exist, um, you know, you're not getting a splashy deal. So just a thought, this was a, because um, we, we had traded the email earlier about what to talk about, and one of the things that uh, a President Trump will inevitably face is a crisis. There will be an international crisis, whether... Uh, it's U.S. sailors taken in the Persian Gulf by Iranian naval facility or a U.S. spy plane that gets brought down on Hainan Island uh, off the coast of China. There will be some visible, uh, um, highly well-known diplomatic crisis, and Trump will have to respond in some way. Uh, talk a little bit about, you know, we know a lot about crisis decision-making in normal cabinets, and we can read lots of his history when Bob Woodward and then memoirs get written, but we don't really know what uh, crisis decision-making will be like in the Trump administration. I mean, how well-prepared can you imagine he will be? Well, I mean, as much as I found that even smart advisors don't make everything better, um, I would say that it's still better to have smart advisors who've been with you for a long time and that the campaign is actually you know, that's still many, many months where you can be tutored and, and study up. And there is not a lot of evidence that he's done that so far. So he's coming in kind of behind the curve. He's come out and said a lot of things about how he's not going to listen to the intelligence community or get his daily brief, which is quite concerning. Um, and so I sort of thought through a bunch of questions that I would want to know if I was analyzing a Trump decision. And there's so much that we don't know, but we can by asking these questions, I think we can kind of focus the mind on, you know, what what more would we want to know, and to what extent does what we have learned so far make us optimistic or pessimistic? So I sort of imagine this thought experiment. Uh, you have a you have the first international crisis, right? So the very first question I want to know is where is he physically, right? Is he in New York? Is he in the White House? And obviously presidents travel, but the fact that Trump wants to spend so much time, you know, in Trump Tower. Sure, they might be able. They will eventually set up, you know, good communications links and all the sort of trappings of the presidency. But I think that we shouldn't underestimate the logistical difficulty of running this kind of sophisticated operation not from the White House as your home base. Right. The people aren't going to be there. The infrastructure is not the same. Um, so that's just sort of a, a a very first question in my mind: is how committed is he to sort of putting himself where he needs to be? Uh, the second, um, what is the state of his relationship with the inter with the intelligence community? Is he getting how how many briefings has he had? Is he reading them? Is he is he accepting them? How much homework has he done? Right. Um, the third, who is it who who's waking him up if this is happening at three a.m. Um, or bringing him this information, which is really the the more important thing, right? Who is the one who who's coming to him and saying, Mr. President, we have a crisis in X place. This is what happened. Um, his impression is going to be formed around that, I think. And from what we know, it's going to be Flynn. And so the question is, what who, what are Flynn's sources? How, how skeptical is he of the incoming sure. intelligence? I mean, 
So you can you can see how going through this thought experiment really focuses on exactly what the source of the risk is, right? How long has this evaluation of the information taken? How thorough was it? How long is the confirmation conversation between, say, Flynn and Trump when this happens? Then how many options are there that Flynn or whoever is coming to him or giving him, and how are they framed? So one of the things I found in my paper is that um, inexperienced presidents are much less likely to diversify the advice they receive. They don't like to sort of have a range of options. They don't like that there could be somebody with a different um, a different view who, who could go and speak out against him later on and make him look bad because, you know, you can say, oh, that president was too inexperienced. Right. They also like recommendations that are framed in more certain terms. So right, right. uncertainty and what you don't know and what you might not, you know, be have, what you talked about was in terms of realistic expectations. That is not a hallmark of inexperienced presidents. Um, six, is anybody with real concern prepared to speak out? Uh, or resign in protest if necessary. So the team that Trump has assembled has some people with some different views, and a lot of this has already been talked about in the press. Mattis's views on on torture, for example, dis- differ from Trump's and, sure. and many others. But how willing are they to speak out? Um, will they? How much? What we really don't know is just how much influence any of these people is is really going to have, because right. inevitably what happens is these appointments get made, and then certain people are in and certain people are out. There's a tremendous amount of politicking that's going on. Colin Powell was appointed to be sort of, uh, it was talked about as almost like the regent of foreign policy when he was appointed to be Secretary of State under George W. Bush. Bush didn't like that, and almost immediately Powell was marginalized. So just because you're in the administration doesn't mean you have, you know, Trump's ear. I always re- I always remember the line of Jim Woolsey when he was the CIA director and that 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 uh, guy flew a plane into the White House and he joked he wished it had been him because that was the only way he could get a meeting with the president in the Oval Office. Yeah. yeah. So it, this happens yes. throughout many administrations. Exactly. It's always the case that there's politicking and jockeying for the president's ear. Um, but it sounds, if reports are to be believed, the tensions are already very high right. in Trump Tower. Um, seventh, who is charged with executing this decision? Is it a military decision? Is it a diplomatic decision? Is it an IC kind of decision? What are they told about the answers to all the questions I've already asked, especially if they weren't in the room for the deliberations? Um, and eighth, and relatedly, is there a record of this and who wrote it down? Right. Uh, which is very important, obviously, for we who, we analysts and historians who want to write about it later, uh, which is a selfish reason to care about it. But it also matters for the staff follow-up and for um, any dissenters who might want to be able to point to that as to boost their credibility if if, if something got leaked. Um, having a record is important for more than just history, um, even though it is important for history, too. That was famously in the case of Iraq when, uh, or, or in other examples, when Donald Rumsfeld would leave cabinet meetings, he would go back and... Uh, essentially rewrite what had just occurred to assure that the directives that came across the river into the Pentagon reflected what his beliefs were, not what had been decided at the meeting. Um, so if there's not both a strong national security advisor and a clear record which everybody sees and everyone has to speak from that same page, there can be a lot more freelancing from entrepreneurial bureaucrats. Exactly, exactly. So everything I've just said, you know, a lot of these concerns have already been expressed. And it doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a calamity on any one issue, right? There's still a tremendous number of wonderful professionals in our government who, uh, you know, they're patriots, they're they're competent, and I hope that they stay and do their jobs. And, you know, bureaucracy gets a bad name sometimes, and standard operating procedure gets a bad name sometimes, but sort of this is a moment to appreciate it. 
uh, on many levels. But I think what we've learned has suggested that what this is is sort of an increase in the systemic risk of the decision-making apparatus, right. right? That this is just a riskier foundation on which to make decisions. And the range of possible outcomes is greater. The range of risky mistakes that can happen is greater. And even if crises come out okay, if if the other side blinks or, um, uh, you know, it, we don't a have a de-escalation with another country. Yeah, a de-escalation with another country. That doesn't mean dangerous things may have been happening behind the scenes that we didn't see. Right? right. Trump will tra- Trump will probably tout it as a big success. Um. But especially if he's disinclined to learn from the dangers that happen behind the scenes, um, and his comments on not wanting to take the intelligence briefing sort of suggest that, or if he gains false confidence from from good luck, right, or from the other side just deciding that this is not worth it to escalate, you know, that just means the risk is greater the next time, right? right? And so I think what this means is that the scrutiny of uh, from from the outside to the extent it's possible of the people who he appoints the process he sets up, even the logistics of where he is and what his process is. It's not so much because of policy, right? We can talk about whether we disagree with policy, but he's the president and that's his, policy is his prerogative, right? I mean, that's, right. that's, you know, that's the bit about elections having consequences. This is more about the, the increased risk within the White House decision-making apparatus. And that is what I think, you know, is part of my sort of focus and concern at the moment. Because inevitably, these things will cease to be hypothetical at some point. Very, very shortly, less uh, 35 some days. Um, So final question. Last time, we, as we end all discussions, we asked you for career advice to young people entering the field of international relations, political science. You said, find a topic you love, you will work on it for a long time. And you also told the young scholars, read widely. Beautiful advice. So we can't ask you the same question a second time. So this time... What advice would you give to peers in your field? What advice would you give to people like yourself, associate professors doing policy-relevant research? Um, uh, what would you tell others like you today? Oh, good question. Well, I will say that I've had an interesting set of Twitter interactions this week <laughs> with fellow security studies folks. And we've all been kind of reminiscing about what we were told about security studies right. when we went into the field. <laughs> I don't know if you saw any of this. Yes, but, yes. Um, and I was remembering that in 1999, when I was thinking about getting into this field, I went around and talked to some people, and one of them told me, uh, who shall remain nameless, um, that security studies was a dead field. Oh. Um, and so this, and mine was one of many of this, you know, type uh, uh, type of comment in this Twitter conversation about how we'd all been told not to study X, right? And I mean, it's important to give advice to, to students about what does and doesn't make a good topic, and and certain topics do are more marketable than others, but I would say if you have a student who has a topic that they love, you know, don't tell anybody that anything is dead, because in right. security studies, I think these things are cyclical, um, but nothing is ever really dead. As, as we're learning um, today. As we're learning today, yeah. Well, so. th- that reminds me, uh, as you know, you said this on Twitter, I'm reminding people to go follow Liz on Twitter, at Prof Saunders, that's at P-R-O-F. S-A-U-N-D-E-R-S. You will be smarter for having done so. And just Google Elizabeth Saunders. Her website comes up first. You can see bio, CV, and all related publications. And keep an eye out for her next book manuscript, The Insider's Game, Elites, Democracies, and War. We look forward to reading that, which will summarize a lot of what we talked about today. Liz, thank you so much for joining us. 
Oh, it was really my pleasure, and uh, I've learned a lot from you, and I appreciate your um, kind words, and uh, I hope that some of my, I hope for citizens' sake that uh, my work sinks back into some irrelevance. <laughs> I, I never thought I would say that, but uh, um, yeah, that's kind of how I've been feeling lately. Un- understood. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, have a wonderful holiday. Thank you. You too. Best wishes.